0: anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and it is our desire to uh, fully understand it and to live it out and to glorify your name, even as Jesus came uh, to glorify your name. We pray now for you to receive our continued worship as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to thank you, first of all, very, very much for your prayers for me while I was gone. As you know, I... I really don't enjoy going on these trips overseas. Uh, They beat up on my body uh, far too much. But as exhausted as I am when I come back from these trips, I come back really pumped. Uh, I come back pumped because I see God's uh, hand of healing in my uh, back, for example, over there was better than it often is here in the States. I come back uh, pumped because uh, I see the way in which God is working in the lives of people over there, and he opens up opportunities that I wouldn't have even dreamed of uh, him opening up, and I'll maybe share some of those in the sermon and maybe after the the worship service. Uh, I come back pumped because I see our brothers and sisters uh, over in China and India and in Russia having a faith to take on the darkness that surrounds them, even though the darkness is far worse than anything we're experiencing uh, here in America. And they're going for broke. I mean, they want to Christianize their nation, and their faith really stands as a rebuke to Christians here who look around us at the the, the things that we're facing, and they're thinking, hey, it's all over. There's no way we're ever going to get our nation back. Uh, There's nothing that uh, that we can do. And the phrase that stands out from this passage... That describes some of the believers in Russia so well is the phrase, walk while you have the light. And in context, since Jesus is the light, he is saying that we need to walk, uh, we need to take action as long as Jesus, the light of the world, is with us. Now, as I've already mentioned, verses 36 and following show that a nation cannot presume that Jesus will always be with that nation. Uh, Romans uh, chapters 1 and 2 indicate a nation can go so far that God eventually gives them up unto a depraved mind. And what verse 35 of our chapter here uh, talks about is the darkness overtaking that nation. And uh, that's what happened in Europe over the last uh, 100 years or so. Uh, It can definitely happen uh, to America. It certainly happened... Uh, to Israel in the first century, they were given over to darkness, and they received judgment in 70 AD. In fact, there is something symbolic going on here that we won't get into much, but uh, commentators point out. In verse 36, it says that Jesus was hidden from the crowds, and then John immediately begins to comment on what that symbolic action uh, was all about. And John indicates that because of the unbelief of verse 37 and because of the shame of confessing Christ publicly in verse 42, that Jesus was abandoning that nation to its darkness. Now, it was not because the darkness was too difficult for Jesus to handle, not at all. It was because the church lacked faith to make a difference. It was because Christians that Jesus had strategically put into positions of influence and power uh, were uh, too ashamed uh, to proclaim Christ and His law word there. And I'll just, as, by way of introduction, just read those verses, uh, 42 and uh, 43. It says, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in Him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess Him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And that was what eventually gave Israel up to judicial blindness and uh, judgment. Believers were not being salt and light. And our nation stands at a similar crossroads of opportunity or judgment. It could really go either direction uh, depending on how the church uh, reacts uh, to what is around us. Too many Christians do not confess Jesus publicly on many issues because they say it doesn't work. When they see the darkness, instead of seeing it as the perfect opportunity to be shining the light of Christ, making people jealous of the light uh, 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 of Christ, like Romans 11 talks about, strangely, they are backing away from that light. And let me give you an example just from this last week. Actually, it was a week and a half ago. Uh, A really good friend of mine uh, wrote me an email while I was in Russia, was asking advice on what kinds of secular arguments he could bring up in a debate that he was going to be a part of against homosexuality. And you might wonder, why would he want me to be giving him uh, secular arguments? Well, he said, they're not going to listen to the Bible. They're not going to listen to Christianity. In fact, they'll shout us down, and they'll say, religion is irrelevant. You uh, You cannot bring that into the debate. That's not fair. You have to argue just from a neutral uh, basis. And so he was saying, okay, this is the only basis I can argue on. I need some neutral facts uh, that they will accept, as if they would accept anything, you know, that would be against uh, the GLBT cause. And uh, he did not like uh, my answer, but he was backing away from the light in his attempts to take on the darkness, and it will not work. Your words... Your opinions are not sharper than any two-edged sword, guaranteed. It is only God's Word that is sharper than any two-edged sword that has the ability to pierce through the thickest chain mail that is surrounding uh, human hearts. And we've got to use the Word of God. But it's always a temptation uh, for God's people to do like the believers did in verse 42, and to back away from the light because we value the praises of men more than we value the praises of God. When darkness envelops you, that is precisely the time that we need to be holding the banner or the torch of the light of Christ uh, much more boldly. And if you don't, all you're going to have is darkness because you're going to be contributing to the darkness. And I was so encouraged to see the way that Christians in Russia are doing exactly that. These guys are unashamedly shining the light, taking the actions of faith against overwhelming odds. In fact, uh, there's one guy there who has asked me uh, to come to his country in 2014, and he's going to be doing all the preparatory work before that. And he says, I want you, uh, for the government officials and all the other people that we're bringing, I want you to give a conference on the biblical foundations for Austrian economics. And people might think, well, that's ridiculous. Those people don't believe in Austrian economics. They for sure don't believe in the Bible. Why uh, would you bring a conference on that? That's not going to work. Uh, He doesn't see it that way. The way he sees it is what better time to bring God's word on economics than when socialism is going bankrupt and everything around them is, is faltering. He's saying... You know, a lot of other people say, well, they're not going to receive it because they're socialists. He said, oh, this is the perfect time to be presenting the Word of God and the blueprints that work when everything is falling in the humanism that they have tried. And uh, so... It's a little bit different attitude. When one of the pastors was thrown into jail, he was convinced God was using even that to advance his kingdom. So he was boldly, and the whole church was in prison there, uh, they were boldly proclaiming uh, the light of Christ in that area. Rather than backing away and saying, wow, we need to be a little bit more careful, he was saying, oh, perfect. Uh, I would never have an opportunity to be able to preach the gospel to these kinds of people. And uh, we see, uh, I saw Blake doing a similar I think Blake uh, was approached by the KGB and saying, What authorization do you have to be planting churches in Russia? And so Blake uh, turned to Matthew 28 and he said, uh, This great commission from Jesus is my authorization. And he read it to him in Russian. And the guy said, That's not an authorization. That's the way I'm talking about He was getting upset. And uh, Blake said, well, do you know about Jesus? Uh, He is the the one who rules over all the nations of the world. And he starts preaching the gospel to the guy. And this guy is getting on the defensive to the point where he was saying, well, I know I don't go to church or anything, but I was baptized as a baby. Does that count as a Christian? And and he says, no, it does not count. And he preaches the gospel to this KGB uh, agent. Uh, The point I'm making here is it's so easy to look at the darkness and say, How awful that is. But what's the point of a light? The point of a light is to disperse the darkness, right? So they're seeing this as the perfect backdrop against which to be presenting the blueprints of Christ. And I just like that perspective. It's walking while there is light. And um, the point I'm making here is there is no reason that we cannot have the faith of the Russian believers to Christianize their nation. There is no reason we cannot have the faith that a lot of the, the Chinese pastors have that they're going to turn China into a Christian nation. In fact, their, their vision goes way beyond that. These people say the Lord's going to open up the, the doors where we're going to get out of this country and we're going to be missionaries and uh, we'd love to be martyrs in Muslim countries. We want to Christianize the whole Middle East. Uh, this is the kind of perspective of faith that I see when I go overseas to India and to China and to, uh, to, other, uh, to other countries. Um, if the only time you are hopeful is when you see circumstances getting better or when you see light instead of seeing darkness, you've got to counterfeit hope. Uh, one theologian said, Hope means hoping when things are hopeless or it is no virtue at all. Hope is not founded upon the circumstances that we have around us. It is founded upon the word of a God who cannot lie. And so this morning I want to found your faith and your hope on seven passages in this section, seven verses in this section here related to the cross of Christ. Now the circumstances around Jesus on Palm Sunday really gave him no hope whatsoever other than the fickle crowds for a little while, uh, crying his praises. They, They later turn on him. But there really was no circumstance that would give them hope. The timing of going to Jerusalem was tense because the leaders were trying to kill Jesus. Danger was everywhere. In the previous chapter, when Jesus said, let us go to Judea again, the disciples say, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you're going there again? And he says, yes. And they say, Well, let us also go that we may die with him. They weren't exactly entering into this with faith, you know, of what Christ could be doing. And so it gives you a little bit of a feel of what was going on around them. Evil seemed to be triumphing, and soon everybody would abandon Jesus because the darkness was so great. But Jesus' words here give us seven reasons why we should keep walking forward even when it seems impossible to walk forward and we're not going to look at every verse but hopefully what we do look at will be encouraging to you the first thing that we see about the cross is that it is a prelude to glory yes that ugly cross and the thick darkness were a prelude to glory It was not at all inconsistent for Jesus to be riding as a triumphant king into Jerusalem in the previous verses. The cross was not an accident. It was not a tragedy. He was climbing that cross as a conquering king. This was a part of God's predestined plan to bring in the glorious kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus prays in verse 28... Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And that was the whole purpose that God the Father had of sending Jesus to die. Without the cross, there could be no glory. But I particularly find the words in verse 23 to be words of faith in the midst of darkness. Jesus said, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, does it seem strange to you that he would speak of the cross as the time when he is glorified? Even the thick darkness all around it, uh, that that's the time when he is glorified. A lot of Christians find that extremely strange. For example, uh, if you read the New Schofield uh, Reference Bible on this verse, you will see the editors stumbling all over themselves trying to separate the kingdom glory uh, from the cross... And you might ask, why are they doing that? It's because they know, and the footnote indicates that, that that Daniel chapter 7 explicitly speaks of the Son of Man being glorified when he receives the kingdom. And they say, this is not the time of the kingdom. The kingdom's way off uh, in the future, distant future. So for dispensationalists, the time from the cross to the present is not the time of glory. It's the time of darkness when everything is getting worse and worse. But in Luke 24, Jesus explains that this was indeed the time of glory that was prophesied. First Peter 1, 10 through 11, speaks of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And in Second Peter chapter 1, he clarifies what he means. He says that the day is dawning, the light is dawning, and it's going to continue to grow until it becomes a full-blazed full-day sun. And this is a much-needed correction to the discouragement of our day. Uh, The church expects defeat because it sees victory as being postponed to the second coming rather than flowing from the cross. I think this is one of the reasons why the church is so passive. It's because it thinks Jesus has to accomplish something more, that's going to happen at the second coming, before we can see any victory. Uh, They don't take seriously Christ's words on the cross, it is finished. He doesn't have anything more. It is finished. Wayne House and Tommy Ice said in one book God has not given the church a proper dose of grace to Christianize the world. In other words, they're saying the Great Commission is going to be a failure. That's exactly what they're saying. It will be a failure. There's no way that he's given us enough grace to be able to Christianize the nations as he has commanded us to do. It's his fault. So their faith is resting upon the second coming not in the power of the cross. Well, with that kind of a theology, it's no wonder that the church has given up on Christianizing America. Why bother? It's no wonder that they're simply playing the world's game in politics just to stave off the disaster a little bit longer. They're not in it to win. And uh, the New Schofield uh, Bible, uh, a footnote on this verse says, "...the king has been rejected by his own nation." And therefore, the predicted temporal blessings of that kingdom for both Jews and Gentiles, mentioned in Isaiah 60 and 62, had to be deferred until the king's return in glory. And Christ says, no, the glory is not way off in the future. He says, the hour has come that the Son of Man Should be glorified. He links the kingdom and the cross. And so our duty is not to wish that Jesus had accomplished something more. Our duty is to, by faith, begin laying claim to everything that He has purchased for us. And Ephesians 1 says, We've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our duty is to walk in the light, walk while we have the light. And if we do that, we're going to keep seeing the light penetrating more and more of the darkness. On the basis of Christ's redemption on the cross, Psalm 72 prays, let the whole earth be filled with His glory. I mean, that should be our prayer. That should be what we're working for, is the whole earth to be filled uh, with His glory. On the basis of Christ's words, it is finished. We have every reason to be praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And His kingdom is coming more and more. His will is being done Uh, more and more on earth. So don't ever view the cross as the beginning of another repeat of history. The cross reverses history. The cross is the fulcrum upon which the whole of human history in the future is resting, okay? And it guarantees the victory and the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And uh, these brothers in Russia, they're, they're doing some amazing things because they have a confidence in the power of the cross. Okay, the second thing that I see here is that we shouldn't be surprised to find suffering and sacrifice preceding blessing. There's always a cost to the advancement of the kingdom. Uh, The brothers that I ministered to, they didn't find it strange that they're suffering in the kingdom. In fact, they consider it honorable that uh, they are wounded soldiers in the advancement of Christ's uh, victorious battle. Um, uh, They counted a, a, a privilege. Verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. It is death and suffering that is part of God's process of producing life and multiplication. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, the very thing that kills some people's faith ought to be a great encouragement to our faith. The apostles in Acts 2, in Acts 3, Acts 4, they're rejoicing for the privilege of being able to suffer uh, for Christ's sake because they know this is the reason for the suffering is they are plundering Satan's kingdom. They're advancing Christ's kingdom. Christ's death was costly, but it purchased a harvest of souls that no man can number. And to me, this is incredibly exciting. Now, I should point out, this verse is describing primarily Christ. But verse 25, the way it's connected indicates, it also describes our lives. Verse 25 says, "...he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life." And I'll comment a little bit more on that later. But it illustrates the lie that suffering is an evidence of defeat. There is a cost for the blessing, but the comfortable Christianity of today does not want to be identified with the cross of Christ." Uh, And so we're not prepared when suffering comes. For the Russian brothers, suffering was not a mystery at all. It's really out of sufferings that they see victory. Uh, But Americans, for the most part, do not like Paul's words, "...the sufferings of Christ abound in us." That just doesn't seem comfortable with American Christianity. We don't have a a theology of sufferology, you know, suffering that uh, the Chinese, for example, have. They don't like the words of Peter, rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, or Christ's words, take up your cross and follow me. What happens is the slightest little bit of inconvenience and they get sour over it. Why? It's the same thing that was happening to the people in verse 42, that uh, it was becoming inconvenient to believe in Jesus because... Uh, you might start getting persecuted for it. And so they became quiet. They would not confess Christ publicly. The message of the cross is not, try it, you'll like it. Uh, One of my brothers uh, from the country of Georgia who was at this conference, he would laugh at such nonsense because his organization is dedicated to defending persecuted Christians all throughout the, the Middle East, Turkey, and the region that he is uh, in. They've got lawyers, they've got food, they've got all kinds of things. But he sees suffering on a daily basis. Try it, you'll like it. It's just a ridiculous concept uh, for, for, uh, for him. But the point is that they have no illusion that Christianity is even anything remotely like the health and wealth gospel. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. The much grain is the blessing, right? But the Christianity in America has reversed that. People want glory without pain. But in desiring that, they're not following Christ. Christ said that He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. And if you had an army of Christians who were willing to count the cost of discipleship, I think we could turn America upside down uh, with the light uh, of the gospel. But as long as Christians play it safe, we refuse to confess Christ to our neighbors, America may end up abandoned like Israel was in verses 37 through 40. Now regardless of what the church out there in America does, let at least our congregation be willing to walk while there is light. The third thing that I see about the cross that should strengthen our faith is in verse 25. Now this may seem paradoxical to you, but it is really the cross that is the source of life. When we die to ourselves, when we give up all of our rights and we live solely for King Jesus, we find life more abundant, not only in this life, but for all of eternity. And so Christ says in verse 25 again, He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now in Mark 10, when he says this, he says that when we give up our life, when we lose our life, he gives back the same things 100-fold now in this time, and then he also says uh, for eternity. But when we cling to everything... We refuse to sacrifice anything. He says the very things we have, we're going to lose. The cross, then, is a principle of life. And that's why Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So can you see how identifying with Christ in his death enables Christ's life to be lived through us and enables His power to be lived through us. But we've got to die to self. Half of the pastors that I met there in Russia were former uh, convicts. One of them had just gotten out of jail. Uh, his whole church actually had just gotten out of jail. There was a $7,000 fine, which I have no idea how they're going to pay for it unless maybe some of us can help them with that. But because these guys have died to a good reputation and they've died to security and comfort and they've died to self, because they're willing to keep walking while they have the light, they're seeing God doing some absolutely amazing things through them. The cross and suffering is not the end of the kingdom. It is the beginning of the flow of God's power. So we've seen already that the cross is the prelude to glory. It's the cost of blessing. It's the source of life. Can you see why I say this is kind of a surprising passage? Uh, he, what he's doing here is he's uniting cross and glory, cross and blessing, and cross and abundant life. Those two don't seem to go together, but in his uh, theology and in his promise, they do. Fourthly, we can see that the cross of Christ is a call to follow. Now, if a standard bearer who's holding up that big flag, that big standard in the army, uh, is holding up an army. He's, He's doing it because he wants the army to do something. If you're not in the army, you're one of the people in the countryside. You can look at it. You can ignore it. It's not going to affect your life. But if you're in the army and that standard is going forward, you have to follow. That's the whole function of a standard. And he is saying the cross is a standard that we are called to follow. You get it? We're called to identify with Christ uh, in his sufferings. And so, verse 26 indicates you don't run away from the cross. You don't run away from anything that Jesus is doing. He says, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. And so, it's a Christ centered motivation. We're serving because of Christ. Not so much because of the honor. I mean, we do receive the honor because of our service. But if it was only the honor that was held before us, it might not seem like it's worthwhile all of the pain we're going through. But because we love Jesus, any sacrifice is worth it. And so it's a Christ-centered focus that we have. We walk precisely because He is the light. We don't walk because we're going to have success. Whether we get success or we don't get success, we walk because... Of Jesus, and we know He is worth it. One of the pastors in Russia had been a, a high up member in the mafia for about 12 years, and when he became a Christian, he knew he had to leave the mafia, and uh, he didn't want to just leave and run away and go to another country. Uh, so he confessed Christ before them, and uh, he told them he was quitting the mafia. Now, he knew from past experience, anybody who quits the mafia gets knocked off. They get killed. And yet he felt he had to do that. Now, obviously, God did a miracle, and for some reason, they decided not to kill him. And he has been ministering for the last 11 and a half years or so. But he was willing to follow that standard. He was willing to follow Jesus, even though he thought for sure that meant that he was going to die. And uh, I think he's a wonderful testimony of the need to pick up our cross and follow Christ. Now, the fifth point comes from the first half of verse 31. And now is the judgment of this world. Uh, The ultimate fate of the world is not waiting for the second coming. No, it's sealed, it's doomed. It's signed and sealed at the time of the cross. Through the cross and through the resurrection of Christ... Uh, the ultimate fate of the the world was decided, forever decided. But the cross was a judgment. When I got back from Russia, Kathy handed me a, a letter from Pete Smogas. Uh, he had been attending a a series of uh, of um, seminars or conferences put on by some uh, GLBT uh, pastors here in town. And he was outlining what they were all saying, and just staggering, just shocking. I I like that guy. He gets right into the thick of the action, uh, right into the gross darkness there and is trying to um, uh, give a testimony to the light. But here are so-called pastors who are saying that the cross of Christ means God is embracing sin. God is embracing our lifestyles and all of the perversions that they hold to. They're completely turning the meaning of the cross upside down. Many people today who don't even go that far still don't like condemnation and judgment. They say we need to make the gospel attractive to the world. Let me tell you something. The first message of the cross is hardly attractive to the world. The first message of the cross is that sin deserves death. You deserve eternal hellfire. In fact, that was the, the, the central message of every animal sacrifice in the Old Testament, that sin deserves death. <clears throat> The reason the cross is hateful to the world is because it means God will not tolerate sin. He will not tolerate autonomy. He will not tolerate rebellion. It means that God will not be bribed by our efforts to earn His favor, that God is a God of justice and of wrath. The cross is a knife that slices down and separates between light and darkness. And it pronounces God's curse against all sin. So we do not have to wait for the second coming for judgment. Jesus said now is the judgment of the world. God's judgment is the central message of the cross that makes Christian sentimentalism absolutely absurd. I've had ministers deny that God is a God of wrath or that God has created hell. They don't like the imprecatory psalms either. Uh, No surprise there. And yet the cross logically necessitates a belief in judgment. The kind of wrath that was poured out upon Christ will be poured out upon all who reject the cross of Christ for all of eternity because they will never stop sinning, which means God's wrath will never stop being poured out upon them. The cross motivates us to preach the true gospel because it guarantees if people don't hear the gospel, if they reject the gospel... Uh, they are going to burn for all of eternity because they have not received the only possible form of salvation. Jesus is our substitute receiving God's judgment uh, in our place. And so the cross shows that God forsook His Son when the contamination of sin was imputed to Him, and it guarantees that all who reject the cross will be rejected throughout eternity. The cross was the condemnation of the world. And if we soft-pedal sin, if we soft-pedal God's law, if we soft-pedal His holiness and His judgment, we are slandering the cross of Christ. God's hatred of sin is central to the meaning of the cross. Now, the encouraging thing to me about this passage is that God hates the sin in in, in present America a whole lot more than we do. We get discouraged about the sin. We think, why is God not doing anything? No, it's not God's fault. He, He hates the sin far more than we do. And if we would be willing to follow the standard, walk in the light, live in the light, as he calls us to in this passage, I think we would see uh, incredible things happening in America. But the church in America is often going in the opposite direction by minimizing sin, doing away with the offense of the cross, and trying to make themselves look nice to the world. Think about it this way. The judgment of the world brings us faith and hope that the world is not destined to win. It's already lost the battle. And so we should gladly embrace the judgment of the cross and thus embrace its uh, guaranteed victory of righteousness. The sixth point can be seen in the second phrase of verse 31. Now... The ruler of this world will be cast out. So this shows that the cross of Christ is not just the judgment of the world, it's the judgment of Satan, the prince of the world. It was at the cross and resurrection that Satan's rule over planet Earth was stripped out of his hands. Christ has been given legal right to planet Earth. He is progressively possessing uh, planet Earth and there is coming a time when every demon will be cast out of the earth, and I believe there will be a long period of time when there will be no demons, and Satan will be bound uh, on, uh, in, in the pit. And so I believe that the cross and not the second coming is what spelled the defeat of Satan. And let me give you some scriptures that show how powerful the cross was in destroying Satan's power. Luke 11, verse 20 says that Satan would be bound by the cross. Satan was the strong man who was bound by Christ so that we could be plundering his kingdom. That's what we're doing when we Christianize the nations. We're plundering the kingdom of Satan. We're plundering the strong man's house. Hebrews 2, 14 says that Jesus died, quote, that through death. Not through the second coming, but it says that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. Colossians 2 says that the demonic armies of Satan were defeated, disarmed, and spoiled through the cross of Christ. That's awesome. They are, they are defeated, they are disarmed, they are spoiled. Luke 10 verse 18 and Revelation 12 verse 9 says that Satan was cast out of heaven as a result of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. He can't even access the throne of God anymore like he could in the Old Testament with Job. He's cast out of heaven. In um, Romans 16 verse 20 it promises the Roman Christians, "...and the God of peace shall crush Satan under your feet shortly." Colossians 1.13 says that Satan has lost authority over the Christian. 1 John 3.8 says that Christ is destroying the works of the devil. James 4.7 says that Satan has to flee if an average Christian resists him. He has to flee. And then Luke chapters 9 and 10 give ordinary Christians authority over all the demonic hordes. To imply that Satan's kingdom is stronger than God's kingdom is to slander the power of the cross. It is the cross and not the second coming that binds the hands of Satan and provides the basis for us casting him out. In fact, nobody could even cast demons out of people until Jesus came. That's why they were so, so surprised. Wow, this guy is even able to, to cast demons out of people. Zechariah 13 promises that the cross would provide the means of eventually cleansing every demon from the earth. It says, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. So that passage is not just talking about the Christianization of the world. It's saying eventually there won't be any demons left. They're all going to be cast out of the world, cast into the pit. So Christ's judgment of Satan is not an empty gesture. It is powerful. We do not need to look forward for the resources needed to take on the world and to take on the devil. I was talking to one of the professors at the seminary in Russia there, and he was saying how important... Spiritual warfare is, and he says that uh, most Reformed people that he's run across don't have a clue about dealing with demons. They they, they don't have a clue, and I agreed with him, and I said it's really sad. Now the Puritans did; uh, they understood the importance of dealing with the demonic. But he said that uh, if we're going to make a difference in the world, there are three enemies we've got we to gotta fight against, the flesh, the world, and the devil. And if we don't know anything about demonology, we're not going to have success. We've got to learn how to fight against demons. And I totally agree. <clears throat> when you read the church fathers of the first few hundred years, you see pastors who had an absolute confidence that the cross was sufficient and more than sufficient to make demons flee. Tertullian said... At a distance they may oppose us, but at close quarters they beg for mercy. I love that quote. (laughs) They beg for mercy. Is the darkness in America scary? Yes, it is. But it is no match for the spreading light of Christ's kingdom. So hopefully you're seeing that the cross is powerful. It is not weak. The cross spelled victory, not defeat. Christ climbed that cross as a conquering king, not as a helpless victim. And John 12 shows how the cross was central to the message of the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. Now, the last point is that the cross is the means of attracting all nations to Christ. Arguing on neutral terms will accomplish nothing. Using carnal weapons will accomplish nothing for the church in America. Compromising our stand so that we can link arms with uh, pagan conservatives will accomplish nothing. It is only the cross of Jesus Christ and the gospel of that cross that has the potential of turning nations upside down. Verses 32 through 33 say, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Christ was guaranteeing that the cross would gather and draw all peoples to Himself. And yet how few Christians today really believe that. Will the Great Commission really be fulfilled? Will every nation really obey God's law and everything that Christ has called them to do? And I say yes. Yes, it will not be a defeated Great Commission. And this was the message of countless people from the past. This was the message of Charles Spurgeon. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said anything short of that is an insult to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the power of the Holy Spirit. It's what David Livingston and Charles Hodge and B.B. Warfield, virtually every Puritan believed. They were convinced that the cross of Christ had a drawing power to draw all people groups to Christ. People groups. In contrast, Richard Gaffin, as many good things as he has said, he's an amillennial reformed guy, but Richard Gaffin says until Jesus comes again, the church wins by losing. His planet, plan for planet Earth is for the church to lose more and more ground until it is extinguished, but he says, hey, we're winning because we're getting to heaven. Okay? J.C. Ryle, good a man as he was, Thought that when Christ comes back, that there would be as few believers on planet Earth as left Sodom and Gomorrah. You can read that in his commentary. Herman Hanko says: the world is filled with sin and getting worse, a hopeless situation beyond repair and impossible to salvage. Can you see why America has left Christ completely out of politics, just like the Christians in verse. 42, shamefully, left Christ out of their politics in the first century. They don't see the point. They don't see how it's going to be successful. They lack the faith that the cross can make any difference in that arena. And because they have no faith, they have no success. Instead of walking while there is light, what they have done is they've given up the world to darkness and they are bunkering down, hoping to hold out until Jesus comes back at the second coming. Whereas Jesus says that the only solution to the problems of the nations is the cross, Wolverd claims, quote, the only solution to the turmoil among nations is the return of Jesus Christ in power and glory to the earth. Arguing that all the peoples of the world will not get saved, which I just find shocking, just shake my head at it, Tommy, I said, I now know that God has not been pleased to give the necessary graces to his church for the kind of victory Dominionists decree. But we dishonor the cross when we lack the faith to believe that it has great drawing power. Secondly, we dishonor the cross when we fail to be involved in evangelism, which is God's means of drawing all peoples to himself. He has chosen to do this work through the church, and if the church is not willing to do it, it's not going to happen. He has chosen to use us weak instruments to advance uh, His cause. Third, we dishonor the cross when we seek to draw people to Christ by minimizing the offense of the cross. Second Chronicles 7.14 makes the church's response to the cross the key to national conversion, which means it really ought to be pretty easy. If the church is the key, it ought to be pretty easy. We don't have to wait for the whole nation to repent. 2 Chronicles 7... Promises, if my people, that's the church, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Heal their land. The church is the key. To Reformation. So, if we will drink of Christ daily, coming to the cross of Christ, He promises out of our innermost being will flow rivers of living waters, and those living waters bring healing uh, to the nation that is around uh, the church. And we're actually beginning to see this happening in one of the the cities where the churches, uh, cities in Washington State, where the churches are taking this seriously. Perhaps I'll I'll show you a video. A video. When the churches have actually begun doing this, having these, um, where the whole church is gathered, confessing their sins and, and seeking to, to, to be a light, there's incredible changes that are happening in that city. Roy Hessian said Revival is just the life of the Lord Jesus poured into human hearts. Jesus is always victorious. In heaven, they are praising him all the time for his victory. Whatever may be our experience of failure and barrenness, He is never defeated. His power is boundless, and we on our part have only to get into a right relationship with Him, and we shall see His power being demonstrated in our hearts and lives and service, and His victorious life will fill us and overflow through us to others. I think that's exactly what Second Chronicles 7 verse 14 is saying. The church is called to walk in the power and the victory of the cross. So let's never be ashamed of the cross. It is the only hope for our world. And it, it becomes, if it becomes our hope and confidence once again, I think there's no reason why we cannot believe that America will turn around and turn to Christ, and nation after nation can do so as well. It's happened before. It can happen again. Listen to the faith of the church father, Athanasius, who lived from 296 to 373 A.D. He said, "...since the Savior came to dwell in our midst, not only does idolatry no longer increase, but it is getting less and gradually ceasing to be. Similarly, not only does the wisdom of the Greeks no longer make any progress, hallelujah, (laughs) but that which used to be is disappearing." And demons, so far from continuing to impose on people by their deceits and oracle-givings and sorceries, are routed by the sign of the cross if they so much as try. On the other hand, while idolatry and everything else that opposes the faith of Christ is daily dwindling and weakening and falling, the Savior's teaching is increasing everywhere. Worship, then, the Savior who is above all and mighty, even God the Word, and condemn those who are being defeated and made to disappear by Him. When the sun has come, darkness prevails no longer. Any of it that may be left anywhere is driven away. So also now that the divine epiphany of the word of God has taken place, the darkness of idols prevails no more, and all parts of the world in every direction are enlightened by His teaching. Oh, that the church of Jesus Christ would regain the faith that we see in the church of the first few centuries. It was just incredible, the faith that they had. And you might think, wow, yeah, we could do that. If only we could live in the, 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 the times of light and the times of victory that Athanasius lived in. You don't understand history, if you excuse yourself like that, because Athanasius went through one of the most severe persecutions that the church has ever faced. It was Diocletian's attempt to absolutely exterminate all Christians. And yet he came through it. And he had a faith that Christ's kingdom would conquer. He had to spend 40 years of fighting, defending the doctrine of the Trinity against apostates. And at one point, every, one person said to him, Athanasius, give it up. The whole world is against you. And he said, then Athanasius is against the world. But he prevailed because he believed that the light of Jesus Christ would triumph. And it did. It did because people like him had faith. They walked in the light while there was light. And I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do the same. Jesus, in verse 36, commands us to be sons of light in our society. He says, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. And so instead of cursing the darkness and despair and grumbling about it and complaining about it, I would urge you, light some candles Start testifying about the blueprints of Scripture everywhere you go in culture. Never let your light be extinguished for a moment. May your words that you speak in politics, in business, in any sphere of life be so permeated with the Scriptures that you cannot help but walk in the light and hold forth the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're willing to do this, we can make a huge difference. Why? Because we're weak, tiny instruments like that donkey's jawbone in Samson's hand that he slew a thousand uh, Philistines with that, that, uh, that donkey's jawbone, didn't he? Well, we, weak instruments that we are, can be used powerfully by the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not ashamed to be a donkey's jawbone, if you're not ashamed to be a dry old stick in Moses' hand, you can be used to part the waters. You can be used for incredible things, for the glory of his kingdom. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen. (coughs) Father God, we thank you for your word. and We thank you that there are people all over the world uh, who are witnesses, who are examples to us of the way in which we ought to live. Thank you for having encouraged my faith once again by seeing people who are willing to take on far greater strongholds than uh, we are facing here in America. But may we have our faith stirred up to take on the strongholds that are exalted against the knowledge of you and tear them down and uh, uh, see people uh, brought out of bondage to Satan into the glorious liberty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand and uh, sing Trust and Obey as our response to this word. And you'll notice that first uh, line there, When we walk with the Lord in the light of His word, what a glory He sheds on our way. It doesn't matter the darkness that's out there. If we're walking with Christ, we're willing to take His Word seriously, uh, we can make a difference.